Chapter 5 of Key Out of Time by Andre Norton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Key Out of Time Chapter 5 Time Wrecked Can we go back? Carrara was herself again, her voice crisp. I don't know. Ross gave her the truth. The force which had drawn them through the gate was beyond his experience. As far as he knew, there had never been such an involuntary passage by time-gate, and what their trip might mean he did not know. The main concern was that Ash must have come through, too, and that he was missing. Just let the storm abate, and with the dolphin's aid, Ross's chance for finding the missing agent was immeasurably better. He said so now, and Carrara nodded. "'Do you suppose there is a war going on here?' She hugged her arms across her breast, her shoulders heaving in the torchlight, with shudders she could not control. The damp chill was biting, and Ross realized that was also danger. Could be. He got to his feet, switched the light from the girl to the walls. That seaweed, could it make them some form of protective covering? Hold this. Aim it there. He thrust the torch into her hands and went for one of the loops of kelp. Ross reeled in lines of the stuff. It was rank-smelling, but only slightly damp, and he piled it on the ledge in a kind of nest. At least in the hollow of that mound they would be sheltered after a fashion. Carrara crawled into the center of the mass, and Ross followed her. The smell of the stuff filled his nose, was almost like a visible cloud, but he had been right. The girl stopped shivering, and he felt a measure of warmth in his own shaking body. Ross snapped off the torch, and they lay together in the dark, the half-rotten pile of weed holding them. He must have slept, Ross guessed, when he stirred, raising his head. His body was stiff, aching, as he braced himself up on his hands and peered over the edge of their kelp nest. There was light in the cave, a pale grayish wash, which grew stronger toward the split opening. It must be day and that meant they could move. Ross groped in the weed, his hand falling on a curve of shoulder. "'Wake up!' his voice was hoarse and held the snap of an order. There was a startled gasp in answer, and the mound beside him heaved as the girl stirred. "'Day out!' Ross pointed. "'And the storm?' she stood up. "'I think it's over.' It was true that the level of water within the cave had fallen that wavelets no longer lapped with the same vigor. Morning, the storm over, and somewhere, ash. Ross was about to snap his mask into place when Carrara caught at his arm. Be careful. Remember what I saw. Last night they were killing swimmers. He shook her off impatiently. I'm no fool, and with the packs on we do not have to surface. Listen. He had another thought, one which would provide an excellent excuse for keeping her safely out of his company, reducing his responsibility for her. You take the dolphins and try to find the gate. We'll want out as soon as I locate Ash. And if you do not find him soon? Ross hesitated. She had not said the rest. What if he could not find Gordon at all? But he would. He had to. I'll be back here. He checked his watch, no longer an accurate timekeeper, for Hawaiian days held an hour more than the Terran twenty-four, 
but the settlers kept the off-world measurement to check on work periods. In, say, two hours. You should know by then about the gate, and I'll have some idea of the situation along the shore. But listen. Ross caught her shoulders in a taut grip, pulled her around to face him, his eyes hot and almost angry as they held hers. Don't let yourself be seen. He repeated the cardinal rule of agents in new territory. We don't dare risk discovery. Carrara nodded, and he could see that she understood, was aware of the importance of that warning. Do you want Tino Rao or Tawa? No, I'm going to search along the shore first. Ash would have tried for that last night, was probably driven in the way we were. He'd go to ground somewhere. And I have this. Ross touched the sonic on his belt. I'll set it on his call. You do the same with yours. Then, if we get within distance, he'll pick us up. Back here in two hours. Yes. Carrara kicked free of the weed, was already wading down to where the dolphin circled in the cave pool, waiting for her. Ross followed, and the four swam for the open sea. It could not be much after dawn, Ross thought, as he clung by one hand to a rock and watched Carrara and the dolphins on their way. Then he paddled along the shore northward for his own survey of the coast. There was a rose cast in the sky, warming the silver along the far reaches of the horizon. At about him bobbed storm flotsam, so that he had to pick a careful way through floating debris. On the reef one of the wrecked ships had vanished entirely. Perhaps it had been battered to death by the waves, ground to splinters against the rocks. The other still held, its prow well out of the now receding waves, jagged holes in its sides through which spurts of water cascaded now and then. The wreck, which had been driven landward, was composed of planks, boxes, and containers rolled by the wave's force. Much of this was already free of the sea, and on the beach figures moved examining it. In spite of the danger of chance discovery, Ross edged along the rocks, seeking a vantage point from which he could watch that activity. He was flat against a sea-girt boulder, a swell of floating weed draped about him, when the nearest of the foraging parties moved into good view. Men. At least they had the outward appearance of men much like himself, though their skin was dark and their limbs appeared disproportionately long and thin. There were two groups of them, four wearing only a scanty loincloth, busy turning over and hunting through the debris under the direction of the other two. The workers had thick growths of hair which not only covered their heads but down their spines and the outer sides of their thin arms and legs to elbow and knee. The hair was a pallid yellow-white, in vivid contrast to their dark skins, and their chins protruded sharply, allowing the lower line of their faces to take on a vaguely disturbing likeness to an animal's muzzle. Their overseers were more fully clothed, wearing not only helmets on their heads, whose helms had a protective visor over the face, but also breast and back plates molded to their bodies. Ross thought that these could not be solid metal since they adapted to the movements of the wearers. Feet and legs were covered with casing combinations of shoe and leggings, colored dull red. They were armed with swords of an odd pattern. Their points curved up so that the blade resembled a fishhook. Unsheathed, the blades were clipped to a waist-belt by catches which glittered in the weak morning light as if gem-set. 
Ross could see little of their faces, for the beak visors overhung their features. But their skins were as dusky as those of the laborers, and their arms and legs of the same unusual length. Men of the same race, he deduced. Under the orders of the armed overseers, the laborers were reducing the beach to order, sorting out the flotsam into two piles. Once they gathered about a find, and the sound of excited speech reached Ross as an agitated clicking. The armored men came up, surveyed the discovery. One of them shrugged and clicked an order. Ross caught only a half-glimpse of the thing two of the workers dragged away. A body. Ash. The Terran was about to move closer when he saw the green cloak dragging about the corpse. No, not Gordon, just another victim from the wrecks. The aliens were working their way toward Ross, and perhaps it was time for him to go. He was pushing aside his well-arranged curtain of weed when he was startled by a shout. For a second he thought he might have been sighted, until resulting action on shore told him otherwise. The furred worker shrank back against the mound to which they had just dragged the body. While the two guards took up a position before them, curved swords snapped from their belt-hooks ready in their hands. Again that shout. Was it a warning or a threat? With the language barrier, Ross could only wait to see. Another party approached along the beach from the south. In the lead was a cloaked and hooded figure, so muffled in its covering of silver-gray that Ross had no idea of the form beneath. Silver-gray. No, now that hue was deepening with blue tones, darkening rapidly. By the time the cloaked newcomer had passed the rock which sheltered the Terran, the covering was a rich blue which seemed to glow. Behind the leader was a dozen armed men. They wore the same beaked helmets, the supple encasing breast and backplates, but their leggings were gray. They, too, carried curved swords, but the weapons were still latched to their belts, and they made no move to draw them in spite of the very patent hostility of the guards before them. Blue Cloak halted some three feet from the guards. The sea wind pulled at the cloak, wrapping it about the body beneath. But even so, the wearer remained well hidden. From under a flapping edge came a hand. The fingers, long and slender, were curled about an ivory-colored wand which ended in a knob. Sparks flashed from it in a continuous flickering. Ross clapped his hand to his belt. To his complete amazement, the sonic disc he wore was reacting to those flashes, pricking sharply in perfect beat to their blink-blink. The Terran cupped his scarred fingers over the disc as he waited to see what was going to happen, wondering if the holder of that wand might, in return, pick up the broadcast of the code set on Ash's call. The hand clasping the wand was not dusky-skinned, but had much of the same ivory shade as the rod so that to Ross the meeting between flesh and wand was hardly distinguishable. Now by one firm thrust the hand planted the rod into the sand, leaving it to stand sentinel between the two parties. Retreating a step or two, the red-clad guards gave ground, but they did not reclasp their swords. Their attitude, Ross judged, was that of men in some awe of their opponent, but men urged to defiance, either by a belief in the righteousness of their cause, or strengthened by an old hatred. Now the cloaked one began to speak. Or was that speech? 
Certainly the flow of sound had little in common with the clicking tongue Ross had caught earlier. This trill of notes possessed the rise and fall of a chant or song, which could have been a formula of greeting or a warning. And the lines of warriors escorting the chanter stood to attention, their weapons still undrawn. Ross caught his lower lip between his teeth and bit down on it. That chanting, it crawled into the mind, set up a pattern. He shook his head vigorously and then was shocked by that recklessness. Not that any of those on shore had glanced in his direction. The chant ended on a high, broken note. It was followed by a moment of silence through which sounded only the wind and the beat of wave. Then one of the laborers flung up his head and clicked a word or two. He and his fellows fell face down on the beach, cupping their hands to pour sand over their unkempt heads. One of the guards turned with a sharp yell to boot the nearest of the workers in the ribs. But his companion cried out. The wand, which had stood so erect when it was first planted, now inclined toward the working party, its sparks shooting so swiftly and with such slight break between that they were fast making a single beam. Ross jerked his hand from contact with the sonic. A distinct throb of pain answered that stepping up of the mysterious broadcast. The laborers broke and ran, or rather crawled on their bellies until they were well away before they got to their feet and pelted back down the strand. However, the guards were of sterner stuff. They were withdrawing all right, but slowly backing away, their swords held up before them as men might retreat before insurmountable odds. When they were well gone, the robed one took up the wand. Holding it out beyond, the cloaked leader of the second party approached the two piles of salvage the workers had heaped into rough order. There was a detailed inspection of both until the robed one came upon the body. At a trilled order, two of the warriors came up and laid out the corpse. When the robed one nodded, they stood well back. The rod moved the tip rather than the knobbed head being pointed at the body. Ross's head snapped back. That bolt of light, energy, fire, whatever it was, issuing from the rod had dazzled him into momentary blindness, and a vibration of force through the air was like a blow. When he was able to see once more, there was nothing at all on the sand where the corpse had lain, nothing except a glassy trough from which some spirals of vapor arose. Ross clung to his rock support, badly shaken. Men with swords, and now this, some form of controlled energy which argued of technical development and science. Just as the cliff castle had bombarded with rocks, ships sailing with a speed which argued engine power of an unknown type. A mixture of barbaric and advanced knowledge. To assess this, he needed more experience, more knowledge than he possessed. Now Ash could. Ash! Ross was jerked back to his own quest. The rod was quiet, no more sparks were flung from its knob. And under Ross's touch his sonic was quiet also. He snapped off the broadcast. If that device had picked up the flickering of the rod, the reverse could well be true. The cloaked one chose from the pile of goods, and its escort gathered up the designated boxes, a small cask or two. So laden, the party returned south the way they had come. Ross allowed his breath to expel in a sigh of relief. 
he worked his way farther north along the coast, watching other parties of the furred workers and their guards. Lions of the former climbed the cliff, hauling their spoil, their destination the castle. But Ross saw no sign of Ash, received no answer to the sonic code he had reset once the strangers were out of distance. And the Terran began to realize that his present search might well be fruitless, though he fought against accepting it. When he turned back to the slit cave, Ross's fear was ready to be expressed in anger, the anger of frustration over his own helplessness. With no chance of trying to penetrate the castle, he could not learn whether or not Ash had been taken prisoner, and until the workers left the beach he could not prowl there hunting the grimmer evidence his mind flinched from considering. Carrara waited for him on the inner ledge. There was no sign of the dolphins, and as Ross pulled out of the water, pushing aside his mask, her face in the thin light of the cave was deeply troubled. You did not find him. She made that a statement rather than a question. No. And I did not find it. Ross used a length of weed from the nest as a towel, but now he stood very still. The gate. No sign of it? Just this. She reached behind her and brought up a sealed container. Ross recognized one of the supply cans they had had in the cache by the gate. There are others, scattered. Tawa and Tino Rao seek them now. It is as if all that was on the other side was sucked through with us. You are sure you found the right place? Is, is this not part of it? Again the girl sought for something on the ledge. What she held out to him was a length of metal rod, twisted and broken at one end, as if a giant hand had wrenched it loose from the installation. Ross nodded dully. Yes. His voice was harsh, as if the words were pulled out of him against his will and against all hope. That's part of a sidebar. It... it must have been totally wrecked. Yet even though he held that broken length in his hands, Ross could not really believe the gate was gone. He swam out once more, heading for the reef where the dolphins joined him as guides. There was a second piece of broken tube, the scattered containers of supplies, that was all. The Terrans were wrecked in time, as surely as those ships had been wrecked on the sea reef the night before. Ross headed once again for the cave. Their immediate needs were of major importance now. The containers must be all gathered and taken into their hiding place, because upon their contents three human lives could depend. He paused just at the entrance to adjust the net of containers he transported, and it was that slight chance which brought him knowledge of the intruder. On the ledge Carrara was heaping up the kelp of the nest, but to one side and on a level with the girl's head. Ross dared not flash his torch thus betraying his presence. Leaving the net hitched to a rock by its sling, he swam underwater along the side of the cave by a route which should bring him out within striking distance of that hunched figure perching above to watch Carrara's every move. End of chapter 5